turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning. The book of Ruth is in the Old Testament. It follows the book of Judges, page 315 of my Bible. Yeah, life, is, life is filled with choices, isn't it? Choices that sometimes seem to be insignificant. Where will we eat today for lunch or what will we eat for lunch? Where will we go on vacation? Some choices seem to get a little more significant. Where should I work? What should I do? Who should I marry? Some choices are, are difficult. Some choices are quite easy. Some choices mean that you, you go with the flow. Others mean you stand alone. Others will lead you or some will lead you into times of great rejoicing, perhaps ease of life, comfort of life. Some lead you down the road of Calvary. The great poet or famous poet Robert Frost wrote, as many of you know, a poem talking about a man standing at the fork of a road with two paths to take, a choice that must be made. And he chose, as he said in his poem, the one less traveled. He says it made all the difference. Some paths we choose, but there are other paths that we don't choose. We get some places where we can look back and see, well, I'm here because of this choice and that choice and this choice and, and so on. Sometimes we sit down and, and lament and simply say, oh, Lord, how are we where we are? The book of Ruth is a beautiful book, a beautiful account of both paths chosen and paths unchosen. Uh, it's, a, it's a book of suffering and, and redemption. It's a book of hope. It's a, a book that in all of it is anchored in the beauty of God's sweet and at times bitter providence. And we're going to look at the book of Ruth over the next few weeks. And as we do, we're going to see the overarching truth that you see on the screen. That in, in Ruth, we see hope in the midst of hopelessness. And we're going to see that theme throughout the book of Ruth. We're going to look at Ruth in four different sermons. The, the first one today is a story of suffering. We're going to look at Ruth 1, verses 1 through 22. The next sermon will be a story of providence. We won't do it next week. Next week it will be Resurrection Day. We celebrate the resurrection of our, of our Lord. But in two weeks when we come back to Ruth, it will be a story of providence. And then the next sermon will be a story of redemption. And we will conclude our study of Ruth with a story in his story. So that's our path as we go through. And I, I want to take the time. It's a lengthy passage this morning, but we need to read all of Ruth 1 together. And so let's just read this. And I would encourage you, if you've never read the book of Ruth, it's just four chapters. Take time to read that this week. And as we go through, it's just good to continue reading it and, and kind of just mulling over the account of the book of Ruth. Let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to the dead and with me. The Lord, I'm sorry, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices And they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
I want to do is look at the first two verses here, because the, the first two verses, and really up through verse 5, kind of sets the scene for the, the story we have and what's going on. The, the first statement is kind of dates it for us in, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you are familiar with the storyline of Scripture, familiar with the book of Judges, you might recall that Judges is really a testimony of, of sinfulness, of ungodliness, of what it looks like to rebel against the Lord. And so what we're going to see is, is really that, that Judges and Ruth are almost a contrast of sorts. Whereas Judges is filled with accounts of ungodliness, un, uh, un, unrighteousness, the, of, of men who lead away from the Lord instead of leading to the Lord, Ruth is filled with characters who just walk in the midst of suffering and difficulty and walk, and, and really there's not a, a bad guy in Ruth. In Ruth we see kindness, we see faith, we see faithfulness, we see the Lord's work, and we see the, the characters clinging to the Lord in the midst of suffering, clinging to His providence, and, and really God's, God's providence and care is celebrated in the book of Ruth. We see God's providence in, in Judges as well. But it's, it's a little different angle in which the people rebel, the, the leaders, those who come to deliver them, and with, as the people rebel, uh, leaders come in and they deliver them. God providentially works to bring about punishment, to, to bring them back to Him, to repent and call upon Him. He sends deliverers, and then the people come back to the Lord, and then they rebel again. It's this cycle in Judges. We don't see that in Ruth. But Ruth is living in this day. The, the very last verse, if you look back into Judges, the very last verse of, of Judges is an ominous statement. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a, an ominous statement that leads into the book of Ruth. It's really a summary of the problem in the book of Judges. That everyone was doing just kind of whatever they want to do. They didn't honor the Lord. They didn't serve Him. They didn't submit to a king, and ultimately they did not submit to the king, but they did whatever they wanted to. And what it led to, the result of this, was really what we might call a national crisis. The, the land was in crisis. The land was in a time of difficulty. There was ungodliness around every corner, sinfulness around every corner. The judges that were supposed to lead in integrity spiraled down and down and down until you get to Samson, who is perhaps the pinnacle of ungodliness, of a man who was supposed to be dedicated unto the Lord. Honestly, it's much like our own day. We're living in a day in which men live however they want to live, in which men and women do what is right in their own eyes. They do not submit to the King of Kings, do not submit to the Lord, but simply serve themselves. And we need to understand, we think about the problems of our day that all of these problems can be traced back to the simple reality that people are living in rebellion to the Lord. That's how we've gotten to where we've gotten to. And that's how the judges had gotten to where they had gotten to. And so we see a predicament in Ruth 1.1 where we learn that there was a famine in the land. And if you just note these, we don't have time to read them this morning, but if you just note Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 17, we read there where God had warned his people of the consequences of disobedience, that when they rebel against him, there will be punishment. And that punishment included, get this, fields and grounds being cursed. And so now we read in Ruth 1, 1 that there's a famine in the land. 
But later, Deuteronomy 31 through 10, God also tells them if they find themselves in this position, if they find themselves in a moment where there is a famine, where they are being punished for unfaithfulness, ungodliness, unrighteousness, living in sin, rebellion, if that's the case, all they have to do is repent and turn back to Him and He would restore them. That's the question. Would they repent? And so here, evidently, because is when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. They were living in ungodliness. And so God has brought a famine in the land. And now Elimelech and Naomi take a journey from Bethlehem in Judah. And they sojourn in the country of Moab. Indication is they, they evidently are going to Moab just for a time being. It doesn't necessarily mean this word sojourn the indication or it indicates that it's probably something that they perhaps did temporarily. They weren't necessarily, according to the text, going permanently to live there, to reside there forever, but they went to Moab to find relief. Now, the text doesn't tell us if this is a sinful act or if it is an act of them going to, to help. If Elimelech is, is saying, hey, we've got to provide for my family. It really doesn't identify that. You can speculate and, and good scholars kind of go both ways on this. Some would say that this was absolutely an act of sin and rebellion on behalf of Elimelech to, to leave where the Lord is and to go to Moab. Now, the reason that they say that, if you know your Bible history, Moab originated from Lot's incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. And so this is not a good beginning. It is in Moab that the king of, Bo- of Moab, Balak, do you remember him? He tried to convince Balaam to curse Israel. He tried to pay him, in, in fact, to curse Israel. We also read about Moabite women leading the Israelites to worship false gods. And then perhaps most recently for our context in Ruth, if you, if you look in Judges 3, you'll read about the king of Moab, Eglon, who comes and he oppresses the people of Israel. This is Judges 3, 12 through 25 is really a, almost a horrific story, honestly. One of the, it's just a crazy account of Scripture of, of how the judge Ehud delivers the people of Israel. But he's, they deliver him from Eglon, the king of Moab. Moab is not a good place to raise a family, is the bottom line. But Elimelech takes his family to Moab. Don't know. Was that a sinful choice or not? Don't know, but it was not a good place to raise a family. Then when you're looking at Ruth, it's definitely not a place that you would sit back and say, you know what, God is going to raise up a, a convert, a Moabite woman, as a convert to then speak into and be an integral part of the Davidic lineage, the lineage of the king, from which ultimately Christ would come. The Jew would never have thought that. They would never have thought that God would use a Moabite woman to accomplish his purposes. And so the fact that they are in Moab is a significant truth, and we need to understand that. Perhaps that's probably why when they come back, it says in verse uh, 20, or verse 19, I'm sorry, the whole town was stirred because of them. They're stirred. They had left Bethlehem. They had left God's promised land, the land of Canaan. They had left it to go to Moab. And now they're coming back. And so the town is stirred because of this. In verses 3 through 5, we see the tragedy of the account. Tragedy strikes. Suffering comes as death comes upon Naomi. Her, her husband, Elimelech, dies. And over the next 
10 years, both of her sons died. There was no one left to care for her, no one left to provide for her. Tragedy came, and it didn't just come in a general way. It was in her home. It was at her doorstep. We, we experience suffering for a multitude of reasons, don't we? Naomi, perhaps, depending on how you read the, the, the account, perhaps Naomi experienced suffering because they went to Moab. Perhaps because of some poor choices. Perhaps not. Perhaps it was just the situation that, that came upon her. Regardless, Ruth, when we learn of Ruth and Orpah, they, they're just simply Moabite women who are married and their husbands die. Tragedy came and it came for different reasons. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see that, that throughout Scripture, those who suffer, suffer for a multitude of reasons so that we can't go, oh, you're suffering, it's because of this. Right? We see in, in Scripture, think about Joseph. Joseph suffered because his brothers intended to do evil to him. He, he said that himself in Genesis 50, verse 20. He said that what you intended evil, God purposed for good. So Joseph suffered at the hands of his brother. The people and judges we've talked about, they suffered from oppression and famines. Why? Because of their own sinful actions. It was their own sinfulness. Their own rebellion brought about suffering. Job, on the other hand, Job suffers simply because of a spiritual attack from Satan. He didn't do anything. Job didn't. Job was just living his life, living righteous, and living for God's glory. And Satan brought great affliction and attack upon him. Then you have Saul. Saul, Saul suffers the loss of his kingdom, eventually his own death. Why? Because of some ungodly choices he makes, ungodly, his own ungodly leadership, and doing what God had told him not to do. But then in, in John 9, we come across the man born blind, and the disciples ask, why is this man suffering? Why is he in this predicament? And the, the word is what? So that God's power, God's glory might be displayed in him. That's why he was suffering. Then you have the apostles in Acts. Think about how they suffer. The apostles in Acts, they suffer because they are preaching the gospel. So they're beaten. They're thrown in prison. They're martyred. They're killed, all because they simply preach the gospel. You think about Stephen. He's suffering. Why? Because it says he was doing great wonders and signs. So then he comes to the point where he is arrested and he's beaten at the feet of Paul and he dies as the first martyr. Why? Because he was just doing great wonders and signs. Paul, Paul, throughout the rest of the New Testament, he suffered from what he called a thorn in the flesh. Why did he suffer from that thorn? Why did he have that affliction that he prayed over and over and over for God to remove? Why did God not remove it? Paul says it's so that I don't become conceited, so that my strength would be found in the Lord. That I would not boast in my strength, but I'd boast in his strength. I'd be reminded that I'm weak. And so Paul suffered from that all his life. We would be remiss to neglect to speak of Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered because of what we said back in the pastoral prayer. Because he chose to step into it. Because it was the, the plan of the Father from before time began. He suffered. He stepped into our sins. He suffered for our sins, not his own. He chose the road of suffering. Suffering comes for all sorts of reasons. And oftentimes we have no explanation why. It's one of the hardest things that a pastor, when something happens and, and a family member looks and says, why has this happened? And 
honestly, I, I want, as a pastor, I want to be able to say, because this. But really, we usually don't know why. We can't answer that question. What we can say with certainty about Naomi and Orpah and Ruth is that their suffering was real. And it was hard. It was crushing, perhaps overwhelming. It was such that it led Naomi to say in verses 20 to 21, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. No one is immune to suffering. No one enjoys it. There's no one sitting in here. There's no one throughout history that just says, I want to suffer. I enjoy suffer. We do not like to suffer. But listen, here's what you need to know this morning. You need to know that as one of God's people, if you are a believer, that you are not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your suffering. The passage that I found great comfort in, Isaiah 43, 1-3, God says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Now listen to what he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God, God is very honest that there will be times when we walk through waters, when we pass through the fires. But He is very clear here and elsewhere in Scripture that He is with us. We are His. Man, I love that. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And so when we walk through suffering as a believer, and we walk through suffering as a Christian, we do not walk alone. We do not walk questioning, can we make it? Is anyone with us? I can't take it. No, we walk knowing that we walk with Christ, the one who says, you are mine, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You do not walk alone through suffering. You need to know this. You need to know this. Christians, you do not walk alone in suffering. So, the question then, we look at the rest of Ruth 1, 6-22, is how then do we do it? How do we do it? How, how do we walk through suffering? It's, it's upon us, church family. It's upon us. Five families in our midst today grieve because they've lost loved ones in the last two weeks. There is member after member, multiple members, battling cancer, suffering through cancer. We have multiple members battling dementia and Alzheimer's and their families watching and caring for them in the midst of the battle. We have a member who is in ICU in Lexington right now. We have multiple members struggling with chronic pain. We have families suffering from relational turmoil, brokenness, separation in their homes, their children, 
what are we to do? How do we get through this? What can we learn from Ruth? There's three gleanings, three things that the Lord impressed upon me this week as I just studied Ruth 1. The first one is this, is that we need to know that lament and faith are compatible. Lament and faith are compatible. Listen, we, we live in a day that, that we want the peppy, upbeat songs. We want the songs that just make us feel good. We want the songs that we like to sing, the ones that, that, are, that get us moving, that make us smile. But, but yet, Scripture's filled with lament. Scripture's filled with passage after passage of God's people crying out to Him for health, for strength, for deliverance. You, you need to know that, that there are days when upbeat songs do not resonate with your heart. But, but a somber song of lament resonates both with your heart and with your tears. There's a day, there are days, have you not been there, when you don't want to hear that little peppy song? But there's days when, dear refuge of my weary soul, is so meaningful. And it's so meaningful to hear the voices of God's people say, you are the refuge of my weary soul. And in the midst of the difficulty, God, I have 10,000 reasons to praise you. And in the midst of the storm, you are my mighty fortress. You're my mighty fortress. Lamentations. An entire book of lament. But that book of lament centers on what? It centers on the, the truth that, that God's steadfast love endures forever. That His faithfulness never ends. That His mercies are good every morning. That God's people can lament and cry out to Him knowing those truths. We have, we have psalms of lament like Psalm 130 where the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand but with you? There's forgiveness that you may be feared. I, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord there is steadfast love, and in him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the psalmist says, out of the Depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And he laments his own sin. Oh, but the truth, the truth, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for In his word, I hope. Oh, Israel, he says in verse 7, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. The Psalms are, are filled with lament. We could go on and on and on for hours just reading the Psalms and how the psalmist cries out to God in desperation. It led Martin Luther to write this. I love Luther's perspective on the Psalms of Lament. He says, what's the greatest thing in the Psalter? But this earnest speaking amid the storm winds of every kind. Where, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lamentation? There, there again, you look into the hearts of the saints as into death. Yes, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could so depict for your fear or hope. 
And no Cicero or other orator has so portrayed them. And that they speak these words to God and with God, this, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words double earnestness and life. Luther, Luther in essence, is just saying, what, a, what an incredible and beautiful and valuable treasure the Psalms are as they, the psalmists cry out to God in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of lament. They cry out in tears and they do it beautifully. But they don't do it beautifully just to impress you and me. They do it beautifully speaking to God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of all creation who providentially rules over all things. They look to Him and cry out to Him in great despair and great sorrow when they are hurting. They cry out and they lament to God. Listen, are you hurting? I would say there is a great number, if not all of us, that would say, yes, indeed, we are hurting. The directive of Scripture is to cry out to God. Because lament and faith are compatible. They go hand in hand. You need to ditch this idea of lamenting being the sign of a weak Christian, of a bad Christian. If I can't handle this, it's not. Lamenting is not a sign of being a bad or weak Christian that doesn't, doesn't meet the standard, doesn't, doesn't make the cut. No, lamenting Crying out to God is an act of dependence upon Him. It's an act of dependence. It's an act of faith. It's an act of lifting your eyes to the Lord and saying, in the midst of the hopelessness, I have hope in you. That's what lament is. And we do it with tears. We do it with sorrow. Lament is good. Lament is right. Lament is necessary. Lament is appropriate. In this moment, in this time, in the life of Grace Baptist Church, it is absolutely right for us to lament and to cry out to God and to say, Dear refuge of my weary soul. The second thing we can take from Ruth, chapter 1, is in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. I've, I've always found it so interesting so interesting in the midst of all that happens Naomi is brutally honest she she's quite blunt and she says God has dealt bitterly with me and she even goes so far as to say God is against me acted against me she she expresses her bitterness verse verse 13 but in the midst of this she evidently does not allow that to lead her away from God See, Naomi had a choice to make. Is she in the midst of her bitterness, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial? Is she going to depart from the Lord and go away from the Lord? Or is she going to turn to the Lord? It is an interesting thing. You can do this. I, I tried to do it this morning, and I got distracted with something, lost count, and that frustrates me when I do that. So I, I lost count at 10, though. There's at least 10 references in chapter 1 of turning or returning to the Lord. It's this theme that the author of Ruth puts in there of, of Naomi turning to God. We see that time and time and time again through Ruth 1, that she turns to the Lord. She turns away from the gods of Moab. She certainly had a choice. She could stay in Moab. There was filled with options for gods for her to worship. There were all kinds of opportunities for her there to start a new life, to leave 
God behind, but she doesn't. She returns to Bethlehem. She returns to the place of her God and her king. Listen, you need to understand that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of lament, we all have a choice to make. And that choice is, will I turn to God or will I turn away from God? It grieves my heart when people go through sorrow, they go through grief, and instead of turning to the Lord who walks through the suffering, who walks through the pain, who walks through the sorrow, they turn away from Him. Oh, that's, that's a grievous mistake. It's a grievous mistake. Naomi continues, she turns to the Lord in the midst of bitterness. In verses 8 through 9, she spoke blessings from the Lord on Orpah and Ruth. In, in the midst of that, she still, she still said, may the Lord deal kindly with you. He's dealt bitterly with me. Lord, deal kindly with them. The Lord, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. She's still speaking blessing with the Lord. Her, her life is, is such that somehow in the midst of all of this, what does Ruth do? R- Ruth says, I'm following you. I'm following you, and your God is going to be my God. So there's something going on there. We don't know exactly what it is, but there's something in their interaction, their dialogue, as Ruth watches her mother-in-law suffer and watches her go through all she's gone through in the past 10-some-odd years. There's something in Ruth that says, I am going to follow, and I'm going to serve your God. There's lots of gods here in Moab, but they are nothing. They are false. They do not step into suffering like your God did. I'm following you. I'm following your Lord. Your God will be my God. So you have a choice to make. And that choice, turn to the Lord. The third gleaning is that we must not lose sight of who God is. We must not lose sight of God, who God is. Verses 20 to 21. When, when she comes back and all the women go, is this Naomi? You know, they're, they're surprised. There's a big stir, right? And she says to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, that is Yahweh, has testified against me, and the Almighty, that's El Shaddai, has brought calamity upon me? See, see, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, man, emotions just overwhelm us. Emotions come sweeping in like a tidal wave, and they can cause us to forget who God is. They can cause us to have false ideas of who God is. That Oh, well, God maybe wasn't able to help. God wasn't strong enough. God doesn't care about me. God's not there. He didn't see it. All of those false ideas, all of those not faithful to the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of our own lives. And we have to be careful to not lose sight of who God is. In the midst of the suffering, Naomi confesses that she's bitter, so much so that she says, I just don't even want to be called Naomi anymore. I want to be called bitter. I want to be called Mara. But in the midst of that, she still declares and states that God is who? He is El Shaddai. He's the Almighty One. He rules supremely. He's sovereign over all things. He's the Mighty One of Israel. She still knows that God is Yahweh, that He is the great I Am. He is the one who depends on no one, answers to no one. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And that's who she serves. Even in the midst of bitterness and suffering, God, uh, Naomi knew who God was and that He did not change in the midst of her suffering. We need to know that. We can't lose sight of God. We can't. I shared it at one of the funerals over the past few weeks that that God is the same 
today as he was two, three, four, five weeks ago. He hasn't changed. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our grief and the tears that you've cried night in and night out, God hasn't changed. God is still El Shaddai. He is still the Almighty. He is still the great I Am. He is still the one that we come to. He is still Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals. He is God and God alone. And we need to not forget that. Church, suffering can leave you in a place of despair and hopelessness. It's very easy to fall there. But what we are seeing and we're going to see in Ruth is that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness. There's hope. Hey, John P- Piper makes a very wise observation. He talks about Naomi. He says, when we decide that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. When we decide God's against us, we exaggerate our hopelessness. That's what Naomi did in verse 13 and verse 21. She makes a statement that God is against me. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's an accurate statement from Naomi. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he rule over all things? Yes. Is there anything that happens outside of his counsel? No. Is there anything that happens outside of his control? No. Is there anything that catches him off guard? No. But was God acting against Naomi? I don't know. I don't know that I can say that. In the midst of the suffering and the trials, Naomi has said, God is acting against me. He is opposed to me. He is attacking me. And in that, hopelessness just blossoms. So much so that she tells Orpah and Ruth, don't even follow me. You go home. Don't come near me. So much so that in verse 21, she says, you know what? I once was full, now I'm empty. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, lovely, and delightful. Don't call me that. I don't want to be thought of as pleasant or lovely or delightful. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because God's against me. I mean, that's her whole identity. That's hopelessness there. But fast forward. Flip over to 4, 13 to 15. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness. Where we read at the end of the story, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, listen to what they say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness. We fast forward and we see that suffering is not the end of the story. It was not the end of the story for Naomi. And it will not be the end of the story for you who are in Christ. Suffering is not the final word for those who are in Christ. Hope is real because suffering is not final. You need to know that, Christian. You need to know that, believer. Hope is real because suffering is not final. There will be a day that it ends. Suffering will always be a part of our lives. 
It's, it's going to be there as long as we're here, but there will be a day in Christ when we are delivered from it. And we stand in the presence of God Almighty as some of our brothers and sisters do now. And we stand in His presence and there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more tears. We are standing in the presence of God Almighty, exalting the name of Christ, worshiping Him, glorying in Him. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. And why is that possible? It's possible because Christ stepped into our suffering. Listen, you need to know that suffering without Christ is meaningless, it is void, it is overwhelming, it is oppressive, and it does lead to despair. But suffering with Christ is not final. It is not something that you walk into and you walk into it alone. It is not something that has no purpose, no meaning, no value. God uses suffering. God can and he does use temporary trials in our lives for eternal purposes. We need to know that. We have to remember it. The temporary trials, they come and that is indeed what they are. This trial we're in the midst of, it is temporary, believer. It is temporary for the one in Christ. But God is going to use this trial in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the difficulty and the grief and the tears and the pain. He's going to use it for eternal purposes. He's going to redeem it. It will end. (laughs) It will end. You have hope in Christ. Don't you forget it. It's It's why Peter, Peter writes to the, the believers in First Peter. And, and what does he say in verse 3? He, he talks about the living hope that we are saved unto. Why? Because he's writing to believers who are suffering. He's writing to exiles. He talks to them in the book about suffering. And he writes, so he, right away he begins by saying, you have been saved unto a living hope. <laughs> and then in verse 13, he talks about setting your hope on him, on Christ. Set your hope on Christ. You're going to go through immense suffering, but you set your hope on Christ. Why? Because hope is in the midst of hopelessness because suffering is not final. God has the final word. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness for those in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you need to know the difference between a vain temporary hope that's going to disappoint, it's going to end, it's going to fail, and between the enduring hope, the confident hope, the sure hope, the absolute hope that is in the sure and steady anchor of Jesus Christ. You need to know the difference. So if you sit in here today or you're listening online and you are not a believer, you need to know that the suffering is real, it is intense, it is overwhelming, it is oppressive, it is despairing. But Christ redeems suffering. And He is the final word. He stepped into suffering to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and He rose again from the grave victoriously ascended into heaven and the great promise of scripture is that all who call on the name of the lord will be saved that if you believe in your heart that god raised christ from the dead if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord you will be saved and you know the hope that is in christ you know the suffering is not final it doesn't have the final word <laughs> it ends in christ and there's great hope in him the 18th century poet and hymn writer William Cowper or Cooper, however you choose to say it. He suffered from depression his whole life. Tried to end his life multiple times. A lifelong sufferer, sufferer, a troubled soul. But he clung to the Lord 
He turned to God. He knew, he knew that suffering did not have the final word. He knew that Christ had the final word in his life. The last hymn that he wrote is God moves in a mysterious way. The worship team is going to come up. He wrote this hymn, a beautiful hymn, because he, he found comfort in his suffering knowing that God was moving in the midst of it. That God was working. That suffering didn't have the final word. He knew that there was hope in the midst of hopelessness. So he was so confident he wrote this. You'll, you'll hear this in a minute. He writes, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Listen, there's a lot of bitter taste right now. Oh, a lot of bitter taste. But Christ has the final word. And sweet will be the flower that blooms by God's grace and through His providential care. This morning, I just want to invite you to just hear this song. I just want you to hear it. I want you to listen to these words as the worship team sings it for us. I want you to hear the truth of this beautiful hymn. And after that, we're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. We're going to declare that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the difficulty, God will hold us fast. In the midst of all of this, if you just want to bow where you are and pray, do it. If you want to come and kneel at the front and pray alone or with someone, do it. If you want to speak to one of the pastors about what it means to follow Christ, that, that you're tired of living in the hopelessness and the despair and the sorrow of life outside of Christ, you want to look and to follow Christ and look unto Him, and come talk to one of us during a song or afterwards out in the foyer. We would love to speak to you. Hear the words of this beautiful hymn.